0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.
1: Our company for a news company is structured in an unusual way because we're still very much a small business and we still very much operate like a startup with a chip on our shoulder. So we're all
0: in tune with the business side of things. This week, RVA Biz headlines and much more with the editor of Richmond Biz Sense. Do stay with us. Please hold the evening of March 12th for Full Disclosure's 2024 sites live at the University of Richmond's Modlin Center. We feature Aisha Roscoe of NPR Politics, Amy Walter of both The Cook Political Report, PBS NewsHour and The Takeaway, and of course, our very own Ben Pavier of VPM News. On stage with me to talk all things election 2020. Ticket soon at vpm.org slash events. Watch that space. And of course, Full Disclosure online. Joining me in studio for the very first time, and I predict the first of many visits, is Michael Schwartz, editor of Richmond BizSense, the popular RVA news source up and running since 2008. It's done the unthinkable and made a thriving business out of uh, direct-to-digital journalism. How are you, sir? Good, sir. I'm in awe when I see these things because we've talked about it before. There's been quite a bifurcation of the haves and have-nothings in Journalism writ large and newspaper journalism. Towns have been cored out. One of the first things to go is business coverage. And Aaron Kramer, your uh, your founder, I remember I met him when I first came to the RVA, and he, I believe, he left the Richmond Times Dispatch to start this in two thousand and eight. And now your staff is how big?
1: We have uh, what a staff of six here in Richmond, and we have a sister site, uh, same business model in Denver with five or six people there. Um, We've been going at it 12 years here and five or six years in Denver. And you guys are profitable? Profitable. uh, Every year is still our best year. Uh, So we're growing every year, and we've been doing it 12 years.
0: And you can afford to give your writers health insurance and everything?
1: We have health insurance, uh, an IRA, raises. uh, Yeah, we're uh, bucking the trend, I guess.
0: So this is the thing I don't understand is, uh, you know, in my past life, I wrote for Business Week magazine, which... Uh, fell into hard times in 2008, 2009, and Mayor Mike Bloomberg bailed it out. It became Bloomberg Business Week. As I talked about the haves and the have-nots, they're the lucky players, such as the Boston Globe gets bought by, I think, John Henry, the billionaire. Uh, Rupert Murdoch was very early in buying the Wall Street Journal. He overpaid for it. Washington Post is owned by Jeff Bezos, the world's richest person. The LA Times, I think Patrick Sun Shing, the, the billionaire biotech investor, bought it out. And then there's everyone else who's just trying to, belatedly beg people to pay for digital because the uh, newspaper ads are going away. In our case, here in Richmond, the uh, the paper of record, the Richmond Times-Dispatch, gets acquired by Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett, one of the planet's wealthiest people, and then he even kind of spit it out a few years later. What is it that you guys figured out that others haven't in digital?
1: First of all, I, I proudly say our, our news is free every day, and... and will be for the foreseeable future. I don't see us ever putting up a paywall. Um, What I think we figured out, which isn't rocket science, is that information is knowledge and and power, and business people, our readers, need information to make a living every day. Um, And we figured out how to find and report news that people can actually use every day. Um, And we'd write it in a snappy kind of light, way that allows people to get in and out in a few minutes every morning. We send it out, we send out our morning email every morning, like clockwork, 7 a.m. People tell us they read it while they're driving to work, while they're getting ready for work, sometimes while they're on the can in the morning. Uh, And we made it habit-forming and useful and we still make it free, so.
0: And that's subsidized by robust online ads?
1: Online ads, and if you get our morning email, it's packed with ads. We call it the morning news feed. comes out Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. It's packed with ads up, up top and bottom, down the side, in the middle. And that's a huge chunk of our revenue is, the, is that morning I email? was under
0: the impression that those pennies could never hope to pay for the uh, dollars and dollars that were taken away when department store ads and, and car dealership ads went away.
1: So the, the ads we have are not those sort of fractional online ads that, that you see pop up. So if you know you search for the container store on Google one day and then the next next minute you're reading the Times-Dispatch or Wall Street Journal, whatever, you'll see a container store ad pop up. That's not how our, our ads work. Our ads are local advertisers who pay to be there every day so every and same with our email so it's there's none of that is is based on search or anything like that so if town bank or atlantic union bank buys an ad it's going to be there so so the on our homepage, we have these big ads that sort of wrap the page we call it the wrap it's kind of our equivalent of a full page color ad if, if if you would and we sell five or six of those at a given time and each of those advertisers gets a fifth or a sixth of of all the page views.
0: I don't and I don't understand works. the economics of this advertisers as a traditional chicken or egg dilemma is like build your audience and I don't know, the pass through, the click through, and I will ideally they want to variabilize the relationship and say, I will pay you for however many people either click through or consummate the purchase. And then that's kind of like, well, you're paying me on spec. So you guys have you know, forgive me if I'm getting way too inside baseball, okay. but this fascinates me. You guys have said no. This is quality content, and you need to pay up to be on our
1: page. Our idea is that everyone in town with influence in the business world is reading this site. And if you want to have your name near their eyeballs every morning, you have to pay to be there. And it was, you know, it wasn't always easy in the early days, especially the rap ads. Those are our – that's our premium product. They're not cheap. Um, arguably still a good value. But compared to most online ads, they're not cheap. And in the early days, it was an uphill battle to sell those because compared to pretty much every other publication that was just giving away online ads as a supplement to the print product, our, ours looked really expensive. They said, you want how many thousands for an online ad? Um, but it's changed in our favor, and it continues to change in our favor because everything's still moving towards online. Um, so, yeah, it, you know, in the early... So we started in 2008 recession, um, Local banks were a tough sell in terms of advertising, partly because of the state of the market, partly because they were afraid to spend money at the time on a lot of marketing, but also because we were all online. But now, if you read our email every morning, there's at any given time at least three banks whose ads run right right next to each other, uh, and it's because they know everybody's reading and they want to be they want to be there. And if you're not there, that your competition is you're left out. So,
0: so the interesting thing is the Richmond Times Dispatch, and I have a tremendous. I mean, no one wants to. Um, Belittle them or deride them—it's incredibly important to the oxygen of uh, a functioning local economy and democracy to have a, a newspaper. You can't just, um, uh, you know, uh, let this let this kind of fall to the wayside. We've talked about it before. How important it is to city hall coverage, other things that just would not be covered in the in the era of of Facebook and Google hoovering up all the ad revenue. But having said that. You look at the business sections today, and this is now you know 12 years after you were founded, and I find maybe there is one or two uh, uh, dedicated bylines from the newspaper, and a lot of the rest is farmed out to the Associated Press or Bloomberg and its Newswire copy. And at the same time, they're asking you online, you should prioritize local journalism and pay us more. And they've kind of fallen into this trap where for years and years and years, they slashed, and now they're trying to harvest digital belatedly. And people are saying, actually, I have login fatigue.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm skeptical of the, of the paywall model, honestly, unless you're the Wall Street Journal or the, or the New York Times or, or Bloomberg. But for local newspapers, I agree with you that it's vital that we have someone covering City Hall like that. Um, I still am skeptical as to how many people really do want to pay for that.
0: Well, it begs the question why the Richmond Times-Dispatch didn't go and innovate something RVA BizSense. When I first got here, I thought it was the online presence of RVA BizSense. And that ticked off the editor. That ticked off Aaron. Like, no, 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 no. The two are very different. For
1: the record, they did try to compete with us. And they launched something, it was five, six years ago, called Work It Richmond. Same color scheme, very similar look to their website, all digital, morning email. Um, But like most big media companies, they kind of did the same thing they do with a lot of new endeavors is they saw someone else that was doing something and making money at it by basically they saw the ads we were selling and said, oh, I bet we could do that. That looks somewhat easy. So they kind of tried to launch what we launched, but put very little effort behind it. And it didn't even last two years, but work at Richmond. And then they launched it in Lynchburg and Charlottesville for a while. Um, But basically it was a direct attempt to compete with us and... I'm proud to say we vanquished them in, in less than two years. And your
0: founder, Aaron Kramer, I met him in 2012 very briefly when he was here, just as he was, you know, leaving to Denver, mm-hmm. uh, which turned out to be a fertile place to do it because the newspaper scene there was quite bombed out. Yeah. And he he had decided, in addition to being an outdoorsman and liking it, that I could really do this in a thriving business town. There are Silicon Valley media and telecom attributes of Denver, huge companies based there, Janice, the investing scene and kind of you know go west young man and he he proved it there as well
1: he did and yeah i mean the idea there was so you know but he left i think it was 2012 i came on in 2010 so by then business was thriving profitable growing we said all right the business is stable it's time to test this model somewhere else in a larger market and a more competitive market and for various reasons he chose denver um but it's incredibly fertile for what we do you know n- real commercial real estate news is our Bread and butter, and the real estate market there is insane. I mean, the prices and just the sheer volume of deals is is incredible. They have no shortage of of stories there, um, and but it's a more competitive market. There were, I think, by the time he went out there, the Rocky Mountain News had already shut down, so they were down to one. And that
0: was like an overnight shutdown. Right. That was whiplashing. Yeah.
1: So that was a two-newspaper town for decades. That was. Uh, they have a business journal there. You know, the Denver Business Journal, yeah. which is owned by the big the big chain called American City Business Journals. There are multiple papers there that, that are kind of like a style weekly-esque yeah. papers. Um, there are m- some regional and state commercial, real- solely commercial real estate focused websites. So far more um, competitive than, than Richmond. And they've been at it six years. So clearly there was still room for it. And, and there was what there was room for was, nitty, I call it like the nitty gritty churn of the local business scene. So not the biggest deals. Like, you know, so in Richmond, Navy Hill, the casino, everybody's going to cover that. The paper, the the TV stations, um, but what the other papers are missing are the, you know, you could call it like the middle market deals. Richmond is a middle market region. Sure. most people in this town, most people in business in this town make their living off those kind of middle, small to middle market type deals. And that's what we do better than anybody else, I think, in Richmond.
0: And we have a great middle market bank in Harris-Williams and their specialty in this is... Exactly. And all the law firms here... I feel like I just did an ad plug, but that wasn't <laughs> intended that way. They would always email me like, the middle market, we've got to yeah. talk to you about the middle market.
1: But yeah, I mean, you know, people say whether, whether Richmond is a second tier, or third tier market, you could argue either way. Some people say both, but... That's the bread and butter here, and and there are a ton of interesting, you know, say real estate deals that are, you know, $2 million or less, but it's still really interesting to know who bought this building up the street. And, and you know, in any given neighborhood, there's this puzzle, these puzzle pieces of real estate being bought and sold all the time because Richmond's a hot market, and it's money coming from New York and Northern Virginia and elsewhere just because it's this hot market, and we follow that closer than anybody else. We sort of geek out on it. And our competition, for whatever reason, doesn't pay attention to that, those smaller deals. That well, they don't I, that have
0: I, the staff to do that's
1: it. That's probably true now. Yeah, they're I mean.
0: Unionized, you know. Yeah. They're, it's, it's constantly jettisoning people and you want to cover the micro elements of it. And also, I believe from a cost basis thing, it doesn't move the needle at a huge newspaper. It is that fundamental problem of having to wean yourself off of an over-dependence, an over-reliance on the era of – you know the local newspaper's hegemony was almost monopolistic uh, the the era of Tallheimer's, the full page department store right. ads car advertising craigslist rocked that we uh, this has been talked about times 10 but it is brutally difficult to kind of suddenly take a sledgehammer to your printing presses and the unionized labor force and you know build it from scratch
1: i mean imagine how much they just printed money before before tv was a thing and you could sell tv ads then you had radio Imagine how much money newspaper print newspapers made, you know, before all that. And there's you know, most a lot of newspapers are still profitable, but they have to keep slashing costs to maintain that profit margin. And I worked at the Virginian pilot before I came here and, and landmarked the company that owned the pilot and it was a closely held, mostly family-owned newspaper for a century. And the family members and the their friends who were investors had become accustomed to a certain return every year on their investment. And that meant a certain profit margin that had to be upheld. And if that had a chance of slipping, you had to cut costs. And first thing they would do is cut the newsroom because it was the easiest way to go because reporters don't generate revenue in their minds.
0: They're a cost center.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I can't go out and sell ads and and make the company money. I can go out and dig up news that people read. It just depends on how you view the newspaper business. Some the people on the business side view news as an expense, and they say, well, we can sell ads, but they don't view it as the reason people pick up my publication, whether it's paper or digital, is because they're reading the news. I remember having there was a general manager in our company when I worked for Landmark that said, man, we could, this paper would – we could mint money if we didn't have to pay all these news guys. And that just shows you the
0: disconnect. You're down with OPC, other people's content. Basically. You're too young to know that reference, by the way. I, I know. It's o, naughty by o, o nature. O not yeah. that I hate you. I,
1: no, no. I'm not as young as you think. Aren't
0: you a millennial? No, I'm not, I, Millennials I don't know.
1: Everything, I man. was born in 1980. I'm not sure. Wow. Yeah.
0: You're just right on the brink. Yeah. I do have to ask you the $6,400 question. Feel free not to answer it, but you should answer it because it's full disclosure. Has the Times Dispatch, uh, r- with a ton of regret, tried to acquire you? Never.
1: And that's surprising to me, honestly. And People ask that a lot. And I, I always thought, why wouldn't they just spend whatever amount of money it would take to hire just three killer business reporters and and undercut us on, on our ad rates for two years and just put us out of business? I'm giving them the, the
0: That's idea. a lot of full disclosure <laughs> right yeah, there.
1: But, um, I should
0: charge for this podcast. But now, That's some intel
1: right but there. Yeah, but you know now we've been around for 12 years and—, and Escape velocity. I, you can't be— yeah, I th- Our company, for a news company, is structured in an unusual way because we're still very much a small business and we still very much operate like a startup with a chip on our shoulder. So we're all in tune with the business side of things. I came from a business journal, and when I came here, we said let's do what we have to do to make ourselves the business journal for Richmond and build this moat around us so that if anybody, any competitor wanted to come in and try to do what we do, it would be that much more difficult.
0: So, you know. You can walk and chew gum at the same time. Yeah. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Michael Schwartz, editor of Richmond BizSense. He's been there since 2010. Yes, sir. A full decade. Yeah. And it kind
1: of amazes me, actually. Uh, I was 30 when I got here.
0: And now you're an old old man.
1: Yeah. Old man with a few gray hairs. The Tell- daily, di- daily deadline gives me a few gray hairs. Tell
0: me this. No shortage of headlines here. I want to start with a, a wild card because I grew up in Miami. And I grew up worshiping Publix and the Publix subs. And I've been asking people a meaning of life question ever since. You know, I lived by the University of Richmond, and they waited two years to turn the uh, Martins, which was old by Ahold, and and um, you know, that kind of left town. And then everybody's like, "Wow, waiting for Publix, waiting for Publix." And it was finally they opened it. And I got to tell you, I go into these Publixes, and it's like they're so empty across the board across Richmond. I wonder if they botched it after the supermarket bubble. Um, they came in. We had a a short period where everybody was interested. Wegmans came in. Kroger. It was the heyday of Aldi. You had, uh, you know, Whole Foods expanding into the fan. It's just about to open up. Uh, have you guys covered that at all? Like the denouement of the 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 grocery wars here, because it's very unlike Publix. This is a very successful high margin for the supermarket industry. Uh, company to come in and, and, and see its stores as empty as it is. And I'm saying it qualitatively. Right. I've never been to any Publix in this town. I've been to about six, five or six that has had many people in it.
1: Right. It makes you wonder if there's a reason Martin's wanted out, and maybe because it wasn't as lucrative as they thought. There, There's also just this – I didn't grow up in Richmond, so and I never shopped at a U-Crops, but there's this –
0: Nostalgia for oh U-Crops. Oh, my
1: God. I mean, it's – you know, they're opening this, like, food crops – Food crops.
0: It's effectively a food crops, a food court opposite Publix.
1: And it's all because people still want to go and buy the U-Crops chicken salad and whatever else they sell. Um, So I I think Martin's underestimated the loyalty to the U-Crops brand. um, And then during that period of when it was Martin's, things got a whole lot more competitive. And I think maybe Publix thought we could come in and bring that U-Crops-style service to Richmond and... And get people excited about it, but I don't know. And then in the age of online grocery shopping, you can order everything now. You can go to Kroger and get your groceries. Well here's the brought deal, is there, is there a
0: lot of fear and loathing over this uh, this Whole Foods that's opening up in the fan in the sour center? I mean, I know people in Church Hill who get Whole Foods delivered from short pump on the other side of the universe. Over there, and I, I, just don't see any appeal in opening up an incremental grocery business. You go to Carytown right now; it's like they're building the Hoover Dam. <laughs> a Publix right in front of Elwood Thompson's, next to a Fresh Market that across from a, Gr- is a Kroger. Empty. Yeah, a, across from a Kroger, which is like <laughs> the singles' place. In. <laughs> I don't understand it. It's one of those things that I bring out of towners here, like, what's with you all's fetish for for supermarkets?
1: Yeah, I don't understand why Richmond's, like, ground zero for grocery competition. But do you
0: know something about an inherent, I don't know, return on invested capital or something that I'm missing in? Or maybe it's a tail wagging the dog that there's more money coming into this in anticipation of something?
1: Honestly, no. I mean, and I don't know. Manchester is a good... Example of uh, or out of an outlier in Richmond of everywhere else in this town has too many grocery stores, but Manchester, which is arguably the most booming part of the city in terms of of development, has no grocery store. Uh, and we've tried for years to figure out to get the grocery uh, chains to tell us what's your formula for deciding to go into a given neighborhood. Um, so I don't know why. What does Whole Foods see over there off of Broad Street? that um, well, no one else ca- sees in a place like Manchester I that's think wide it, open.
0: Well, Broad Street, I think it's table stakes for someone like them. Broad Street adjacent to this Scots Edition phenomenon, which yeah. is the, I mean. I think it's gonna print money
1: over there, <laughs> I mean,
0: yeah. You talk about millennials wanting to live in the Scots Edition corridor. You know, you talk about 2010. I I was coming to this city. I got married in two thousand eight, and there was nothing going on over there, man. I think it was a big brownfield. Mm-hmm. You just passed by it. Well, yeah. What was the there there? When you look back at it, was there one tipping point in covering commercial real estate, or one transaction, or creative destruction thing that that kind of lit the? I'm, I mixed twenty five thousand metaphors right there. Did you notice that? Lit <laughs> I'm having the trouble Scots following edition, this. That lit the Scots edition powder keg.
1: Ironically. There was one—largely one developer who saw Scott's Edition for what it now is before it was, and that was a man named Justin French, you probably remember. Yeah, him. yeah. And he he saw it before anyone else really saw it, and started the—he he got the ball rolling, and then shortly after he got it rolling, he defrauded the state and federal government and a bunch of banks. Um, the ball rolled on him. Yes, um, but then— a lot of other smart developers kept it going and, and took it to another level. But what level. is it
0: about that? What is it about that corridor? I mean, was was the tipping point uh, transit that somebody had realized that after the Great Recession, people were moving back to cities that, um, you know, bombed out millennials that didn't, you know, they they weren't driving cars. You started to see the advent of Uber. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of go back and like, how could you have predicted that? I don't know, and I, it has something to do with.
1: This generation wanting urban centers and i've I've wondered so i don't I don't know about you I grew up in the suburbs, yeah, a lot of people that I know from my gen- pretty much all grew up in the suburbs so what what caused our what caused our parents who probably grew up in city most likely in more urban areas to move to the suburbs take their children and raise them to, in the suburbs was it you know, is a, it goes beyond white flight, in my opinion. So now there's this reversal going back where people want to live in cities. So Richmond needed, in my opinion, or or was lacking in some people's mind, a a Brooklyn-type atmosphere, a Brooklyn-type a center of the city that had this Brooklyn feel to it with breweries and hip restaurants and what all these, you know, the hipster generation would want. And Scott's edition, maybe it was by virtue of location or by virtue of just the the amount of old warehouses that could be rehabbed uh, using historic tax credits, um, just all right. Maybe th- that yeah. was the
0: arbitrage initially. Yeah. with Justin French.
1: It was the concentration of it, whereas everything else was sort of spread. I mean, maybe you could Tobacco Row had a good amount of them, but yeah. uh, but otherwise it was sort of one-off warehouses. Scott's edition was this sort of self-contained neighborhood with actual sort of natural borders, you know, the, uh, the, the expressway on one side, Boulevard on another side, Broad Street on the other side, and then railroad tracks. So it's this almost like an island of of old warehouses that almost everything in that neighborhood could be converted using tax credits. Um, and
0: it had but that. But no greenery. That. I mean, it's, it's said that it's on average three degrees hotter than the rest of the <laughs> yeah. city because there's not a single swale or a patch yeah. of grass or a tree and even then i wonder was there was there the sewerage in place to deal with um, you know the water incremental water demand of all these breweries that just suddenly showed up there
1: probably more so than other neighbors just because it had always been in an industrial neighborhood so i mm-hmm. think it was sort of uh, already set up for that with with the with the pipes um, hasn't seemed to be an issue i don't know about storm water and all those other things but yeah so that makes sense that it's just been <laughs>
0: You know, the interesting thing with me is, when I first, this is a terrible admission, but when I first got here and I would actually get lost over there and I'd see a place, oh, Paper Moon, that must be an Asian market. And I would tell people, there's an Asian market not far from the diamond. and You know, I've been disabused of that now. But then you see ZZQ, you see uh, fancy gelato places, what's this, Star Hill Brewery. But this still has two strip clubs, so... It it pa- does retain paper moon and Richards. It does retain its seediness it on, on parts of the boulevard and everything, but a, you know, huge thriving Wawa and whatnot. It's yeah, it's been
1: fascinating to watch, and the, and now everyone's sort of saying, "What's the next Scots edition?"
0: Well, Manchester's always been on the brink, right? Yeah, it's always going to be the year of Manchester. I mean, I'm
1: fascinated by Manchester right now. If you look across the r- from across the river into Manchester, there's cranes everywhere, and there's now a there are towers going up that are gonna create a skyline for Manchester, which it never really had. Um, was
0: that where the metals the Reynolds metals I think plant was Yeah, that was a part of space it. right now?
1: That was part of it, yeah. City View City View Landing, um, which was the Reynolds South. Yeah. So there were two Reynolds plants, one on each side of the river. On the north side it's called the Locks. That's the development down there now. South side was is now City View Landing. Um, but there's they built a ten story tower there. They're building another uh, 10 or 11 story tower and there's two twin towers going up that I think are 11 stories so there's pro- there are probably I think four maybe five towers going up so all of a sudden Manchester is going to have a, a skyline and what does that mean for for the city people can you know arguably the view from is better from Manchester um, and pretty soon it'll be the view will be decent from the other side of the river so I don't know what that means going forward.
0: Take us north of that to uh, Navy Hill the Battle of Navy Hill and how this is kind of playing out. You, We had uh, Mayor Lavar Stoney on the show recently. We had Steve Markell. The, the people um, really fighting for uh, this project, the wholesale redevelopment around the, the Richmond Coliseum, which is kind of a rusted tin can just sitting there. You would think from a lay's pers- lay perspective that you could just replace this Coliseum, but no, no one else wants to come and take that risk. You need significant hotel occupancy around it. You need retail space. You need – uh, a special tax husbanding mechanism with the city. What's your read on on what what's going on there? And do you think it'll happen?
1: If if the vote was today, I don't know that it would happen. Um, just just based on people that we talked to, I don't know that there are enough city council members who would vote for it. Um, should it happen? Something needs to happen in the neighborhood. You know, our office is not far; from, is you know five blocks over, and it's. You know, I I remember walking by one day, walking by the old the Blues Armory, and it was, it's used as a human toilet now. I mean, people and they put up fencing to to close it out to people, but it's it's just it's a dead zone. It really is a dead zone, sort of in the heart of the city. Something needs to happen. Does that mean that it needs to be an arena anchored development? I don't know. Uh, if it was, you know, people keep asking, why is that the why is the arena the one piece that the developers won't pay for? It's commendable that they're willing to put up $900 million of their own money to, to do the rest of the project. But why is that the one piece that they can't pay for it or won't pay for? Do
0: you look askance at the, the idea here that one developer group cleared the RFP standards by City Hall? I mean, you would think, from, a, from a, especially in all the real estate coverage you guys do, that if this were that enticing, if it was a once-in-a-generation opportunity with public-private partnerships and everything, that all sorts of people from northern Virginia would be pouncing on it.
1: I'll, I'll say this, so we, first I'll toot the BizSense horn, we we were the first to report that that was even in the works, that Tom Farrell and, and C.T. Hill and, and those guys were looking and pushing for an arena-anchored development over there. After that story came out, it was suggested to us that that shouldn't have gotten out when it did in the way that it did and that that threw a wrench in the whole process. And some people have said, Well, was the RFP rigged? I don't think that was the case. I think probably what happened was that it was far enough along in the process that the city hadn't already in mind what it wanted and what it was going to ask for in an RFP. And in the 90 days that they gave people to respond, there just wasn't enough time for people to really come up with a a plan that looked as good. Who
0: who were the torchbearers of this this partnership? It's Tom Farrell of Dominion, this chairman and CEO of Dominion. Is it Marty Barrington of— I mean, who, yep. who else are involved? Why isn't it as clear who the partners, you know, limited or general or the invisible hands behind right. it are? Yeah, I've tried to follow it.
1: Yeah, I mean, no one really knows. Yeah, it's, it's Farrell, it's it's Barrington, who's since retired from Altria. From Altria, the parent of um, Philip Morris. C.T. Hill, who was a longtime local banker. I think he retired from SunTrust years back. Uh, Bill Goodwin's involved tangentially. Um, and then there's a bunch of other investors who remain nameless. Um, and, and
0: then who is this gadfly with all the Freedom of Information Act requests, this developer who's kind of hitting at them to keep them honest? He's doing a great job,
1: whoever this guy is, yeah. And then there's the um, the lawyer, I forget his name, who has the No Coliseum website. So right. it's been kind of amazing. And I'm not so sure that the develop I, I You know, they knew they were going to get pushback. I'm not sure they knew there was going to be an entire website devoted to to trying to kill this project.
0: And, you know, moreover, I'm wondering if the uh, misadventures of Amazon in Long Island City in Manhattan with the AOC pushback and how that was kind of became cause celeb of, of the left there that we, you know, us versus them, business interests, corporate welfare, that that was a kind of a rallying template for what happened here. If you see some of the younger voices, the opposition voices, you know, Chelsea Wise on WRIR, uh, the younger people that are saying, just hell no, this is never going to work. In fact, don't invoke uh the 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 sacred brand of Navy Hill.
1: There's probably some of that, and it's largely related to Dominion. You know, people there is the misconception that Dominion is funding this entire effort, which they're not funding it per se. Uh they're backing it in ways that, you know, they want to put their name on the arena and that kind of thing. But I've I've said and this is full disclosure, son I'm mine saying this. I've said that if it was anyone else, any other local executive who had been pegged as the spearhead of this project, other than Tom Farrell from Dominion, that it would have been, it would have likely been at least a little bit less controversial. And the reason for that in my mind is because, you know, a lot of the talk about Navy Hill has been, well, this is gonna be good for, everybody. It's gonna be good for those who have money, those who don't have money because we'll be creating jobs for, for people, yada, yada. But whether you're rich or poor, in Richmond, every month you cut a check to Dominion. And so having Dominion sort of uh, lingering in the background of this project just gives people a bad taste in their mouths. And then the other angle of, to it of Dominion being involved is that they're in the midst of all the the pipeline controversy and people are protesting that. So there's spillover from the, from the pipeline controversy that's bleeding into the Navy Hill, which the two are totally unrelated. But just because it's attached to it's dominion. kind of a
0: backwash of, of
1: yeah and and dominion is a state approved state regulated monopoly so people view them as this evil corporation i'm not saying that they are but that's just how they're viewed so if it had been and maybe their original intent was not to make it so that tom farrell was was publicly known as the 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 force behind this um, maybe they would have done it differently but that's just kind of how it came out
0: so I've asked this before, but you know they say the best alternative to negotiated agreement, BATNA in in negotiations. They say if these guys just walk away, or if it doesn't happen, or if the shot clock runs out on this administration, or somebody just says, you know what, you don't deserve us, pulls a, an Atlas shrugged or something on this, right? What happens to that area? Does gentrification not catch up ultimately? I was thinking about that this morning, actually. I, I mean, people... LeVar Stoney said that there's just not the infrastructure there. Roads are buried. They're dead end roads. <laughs> There's this the sewerage needs another shot. Um, you, you, I said that maybe you can recycle the Coliseum and get scrap metal out of it, but it's not enough to underwrite.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the plans was to to use the rubble from the demolition of the of the Colosseum and t- to fill in where Lee Street goes down under the overpass and fill that up and bring it to grade. But they scrapped that. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, people have said, well, why can't the rest of Richmond has done pretty well just by letting developers do what they do and finding properties that they want to buy and doing what they want with it within reason Um, but I don't know maybe that number one all that property over there is owned by the city so the city would be the seller so they can hold on to it and do what they want with it people could argue that well it's not the city that owns it it's the the taxpayers that own it so you should do with with it what we want Um, I don't live in the city so I don't necessarily have any skin in the game Um, yeah the infrastructure would be an issue the cost of demolishing everything would be an issue um you look at that site, that ten acre site versus the boulevard, which is sixty acres, uh, arguably in a better location and has a lot less infrastructure issues. I mean the only thing you would have to demolish over there is the diamond. Everything else has pretty much been cleared. So I don't could know. Could you
0: make a joint a joint baseball and, and multi purpose facility like a Capital One arena type thing? I mean, isn't two, this two and one or two, be, yeah, or, two or, one. or an
1: arena and a stadium next to next each other? Next to each other? Next to each other, I think you could probably pull that off not over that not in navy hill i don't think necessarily mm-hmm. um and maybe it's because of the infrastructure but uh and you know in my mind the boulevard makes more sense to have both of those than than mm-hmm. the navy hill property would um especially if you're going to do a tiff so if the whole project hinges on again remind us what a TIF is taf, tax increment financing district which is this this sort of zone that, that would be created to to help fund, to help pay for the, the bond payments on the uh, arena over time. So the idea is that any new revenue created within that zone as a result of or or just during that period would go back to help but pay the you, bonds. we've
0: already said that Scott's Edition doesn't need uh, subsidy right now. Right. <laughs> there are a couple of seedy motels left and everything, but you wonder if left to its own devices – Developers are going to go there. They're picking apart all the dregs, all the marrow yeah. of the corner of one ninety five and everything. There's right. like nothing left.
1: Yeah. That people are paying, you know, almost two million dollars for half an acre in Scott's Addition to so they can go vertical, five stories, and build you know hundred something apartments. So it, it begs the question in Navy Hill: Could, would a developer want to do this project without the arena? If so, why? Or why not? Um, the, the Navy Hill folks have said. The answer was is no, and that the reason would be because the underwriters of the rest of the project of the other nine hundred million dollar in private development, they wouldn't underwrite it without this cultural centerpiece, this amenity that m- in in many cases has they are. But is
0: that, that. that that's kind of the loss leader thing, and that nobody yeah. really wants to own yeah, that it's a, it's and a take a the risk there. They want the optionality of hotels and and higher margin kind of retail.
1: And they've said running an arena is often not a viable business and. It's a cultural centerpiece that, m- in many most cases, has to be subsidized in some way.
0: Full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. May the Schwartz be with you, but not before he's with us. How did you like that? Did, that was good. Did you hear mm-hmm. that a lot growing up?
1: S- Spaceballs, yeah. So when I when I, when that movie came, well, well I had to tell him can who you, I tell are? you are the story?
0: editor of Richmond BizSense, Michael Schwartz, go ahead.
1: My dad was in the radio business growing up, and when Spaceballs came out, I was you know five or six probably. And they were doing all kinds of Spaceballs promotions through his radio station. So I had all these – I had Spaceballs, the lunchbox, Spaceballs, the pencils at school. And um, I told everyone that Mel Brooks was my grandfather, and they believed me. So that's my Spaceball story.
0: You know, I came from Iran, and I told everybody that Iran by Flock of Seagulls was about my homeland. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> Talk to me about dead and dying malls, sir. It's a – its a you know, this this long decline of retail. You've had to cover the – really tortured wind-down of the Regency Center Mall, right, in, in Regency? Bush, Regency Square. Regency Square yep. Mall off of Parham in Henrico, which was once the star. And this has happened to every town, that you get the flight. The big shiny mall, uh, in in our case, was Short Pump that was built out uh, on old farmland. But at the same time, uh, in the early aughts, uh, you had Stony Point Fashion Park, which was on the south side of Richmond, opposite the Willie Bridge. And now we see that the owner there has fallen behind on the mall's loan payments. And is that in any risk of liquidation? We've seen weird things happen there. It's hard
1: to know. you know, Some of those big commercial-backed loans, uh, the borrowers will let them go into default on purpose. A strategic it, default. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's hard to know. Uh, but the, the borrower in this case is, is on, on, has fallen behind on other mall loans. So it's, it, Stony Point is this weird example of...
0: And we have established <clears throat> that it was not named for LeVar Stoney when he was on the show the mayor. <laughs> that's that's you at, the oh, point. you asked yes, that. Okay, we that. Go I got no shame. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it opened the same year as Short Pump. Short Pump, by all accounts, appears to be thriving, right? If you go out there, the place is packed all the time. My wife went to Stony Point this past weekend just to have coffee with a friend, and she said she was one of like four people that she saw there and the other three people had their dogs with them because, you know, they, you can bring your dog to Stony Point. So it's this – in this weird and, – and, you know, it, uh, on paper, the mall apparently is generating a, a positive amount of, of uh, operating income according to all these loan documents that are out there. So it's hard to know exactly why.
0: But strange why, things have happened, right? This wing <clears throat> store that came, Anchor Wings that – was it all excited about it. it. Lasted eight months. Yeah. The c- dick Sporting Goods closed and then relocated in a in a kind of a more discount space. Did a Starbucks there yeah. close? A star- the, A it, Starbucks actually closed at a mall. Yeah. If that's if that's, if that's, that's not the indicator species. I know, I know. and
1: the, it's it's not just the decline of malls generally that's affecting Stony Point. And it's not to say Stony Point's destined to die. It's, it's the decline of malls, that's part of it. I think it's the location. I think it's the fact that you have a formidable competitor in Short Pump Town Center. Um, and it's the way that I think that the mall was laid out with these weird, this weird loop that you have to drive around to get everywhere. I think it's just, it's just this package of, of factors that have, that have affected it negatively
0: and this is just relentless this is continuing i mean people re- they used to say that it was unthinkable for staples to start shutting down stores we've even seen CVS shutter some locations yeah. this is supposed to be a long winter for retail if we do get to the amazon aspect of it and this being a region where amazon has had many test facilities you guys are covering it this week i mean we were very early in being able to get one day delivery in being able to, you know, pilot with Whole Foods delivery, and now you're saying that the Amazon anchored Southside warehouse complex fe- fetches seventy eight million dollars.
1: Yep, it was a, it's a bunch of land owned by had been owned by Philip Morris. They sold it to this developer called Panatoni. Panatoni, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, and they quickly built uh, almost a million square feet across two warehouse buildings. Promptly leased it. Half of it went to Amazon. Half went to a company called Brother International. Mm. And um, yeah, so that's amazon has i think at least three facilities four and four facilities here now the first one was in chesterfield years ago then they did one in dinwiddie they did one up in uh, hanover ashland area and then now this one
0: so the pure business journalists in you rva virginia aside how do you even look at a company like amazon again a trillion dollar valuation company disrupted bookstores disrupted record stores the founder bought the washington post it owns audible it bought Woot. It bought Whole Foods. Now
1: they're doing their own shipping. so They're, they're doing their own they're... shipping
0: and now it's a pure logistics threat. I think about it every Sunday. You know, I see outside that there's this uh, blue Amazon van that pulls up and any CEO of any company should be terrified to see that on a Sunday oh, yeah. because these guys are 24-7 on demand and the asymmetry of it is that Wall Street is not measuring them as a retail player per se it's not measuring them as a tech player per se or a cloud player per se you're not measuring them on same store sales you're just looking at them as a disruptor that gets a pass
1: and i suppose if anything they're a logistics company more than even more than a tech company you know um it's yeah it's fascinating you know it feels like they could just take over anything uh I mean, they bought Whole Foods and... And uh,
0: and that's not even... It's not even material to the financials. They spent $14 billion of cash to buy Whole Foods. Right. It's not truly broken out in the financial statement. They have things that even internally compete with Whole Foods. But again, a Whole Foods, when it was a pure play public company, was measured intensely on margins and same store sales and everything. And this is why I think about what's going to happen to a short pump town center, which might seem hale and hearty right now. It has the one Apple store here. It has... You know the one place where my kids can get their shoes fitted with a you know woman from Saxon Shoes who's been doing it with kids for 35 years, but everything else around it. Oh, it also has, you know, um, Leja. It's always sunny and short pump, but I like that. But, <laughs> but what else is indispensable in that? Are you looking at maybe Short Pump Town Center being the next big boot to fall?
1: As of now, no. I mean, that brings me back to a thought about Stony Point. If you drive by Stony Point, say, on a Saturday night, the, the one side of the, that mall where all the restaurants are, there's, it's packed with cars. So people are going there for the restaurants. So it's a matter of can malls or should malls have to evolve to the point where they are a destination in some way for things other than shopping. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Stony Points tried to bring in yoga studios. Uh, they, made, they brought in an escape room, a new movie theater. Um, they're, they've been in talks with this kind of high-end fit, uh, gym chain called Lifetime Fitness, and, but what is it, still, that doesn't answer the question, what does that mean for your traditional retailers? How long does Saks, Saks, stay, cheese, yeah, yeah, well, no, Saks Fifth Avenue. Saks Fifth at, Avenue, at that's right. point, How, yeah, and, and, well. By the
0: way, Amazon owns, uh, uh, Zappos. Yeah, right. <laughs> the biggest online shoe reseller. They have a hand in every pot. Saxon's
1: a really good example. I mean, sort of old school- Shoe store where, like you said, it, they still have people who actually sit down and know how to fit your 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 shoes. Um, they seem to do pretty well. Uh, but how long does all that last? How long till? They and even can't- you know,
0: adjacent to this, you talk about the restaurant industry. There's also distress. You guys have covered it. Applebee's that have shut down full locations. Ruby Tuesdays, big restaurants that are not prepared for this shift. And I I don't know if this part has been covered, but these these ghost restaurants. These uh, places, like you see them in the likes of Scott's Edition in Manchester, they're a kind of private label restaurants, which many online brands share the kitchens, and then it's all for on-demand, DoorDash, mm. all that stuff. And that must terrify if you're a Chewy's, if you're an Olive Garden. I've put all this stuff in property, plants, staff, training, and everything. And at some point, that becomes an albatross to my business model.
1: I mean, it's not unlike what happened with Sears, where at the end, they became more valuable for the real estate than, than their core business. I mean, you know, does Applebee's and and Chili's and all those, do they own all their own restaurants? I don't think so. They lease them most of the time. But in Richmond, there are, I think, four Ruby Tuesdays that are just sitting empty currently on the market, all kind of in prime locations, but all built for one use. How do you reuse a building like that? You probably just have to tear it down unless there's some local... Local restaurant that wants to go in there, but they don't really wouldn't like that kind of space. Are you guys
0: breaking the news that uh, Chase Bank is coming to town? Have they not been here before? Have not been here before, and they're looking at this shuttered Matchbox restaurant in Short Pump. That's another one that came with a lot of fanfare. That it was great while it lasted, and you could go in and have a great flatbread and everything. And then the next minute, it was like an usual suspect.
1: Yeah, la- lasted and it was three gone. years. Yeah, so yeah, the bank's taking it over. Um, but yeah, Chase Chase hadn't been here. They're doing a, a sort of. Uh, East East Coast expansion uh, DC they call it the DC Market which Richmond's included in that and they're doing the old Extra Billies they actually seem to like a long vacant restaurant Extra Billies at Willow Lawn uh, Matchbox at Short Pump and then another one out in the West End and that's kind of their initial push for now Um, but they're kind of quietly coming in so there'll be a new national bank brand to compete with Truist which will be the new brand when it arrives as a result of SunTrust and BB&T getting married
0: Everybody, um, on RVA Reddit and on, you know, RVA Dine is interested in the fate of Sugar Shack Donuts. And this has been subsumed in quite a bit of controversy over the past couple of months and, you know, dissension among the ranks and maybe a board, boardroom coup. Right. What do you guys know about it? We've been hearing from some people, um, people who claim to be... Sugar Shack Donuts for our listeners nationally.
1: Yeah. People who claim, who claim to be investors in, in some of the various locations, um, what I know now is they they shut down. I think three locations that have well two locations closed. One one in Virginia Beach. One in um, uh, where was the other one? I can't think of the other one. Then Fredericksburg, I guess, changed names, names because of the way the the licensing was done with the brand. Um, the flagship location here in Carver in the Carver neighborhood. It's for lease. The building is for lease. Um, the the shop is still open, and I. I have a feeling that they're gonna relocate. That would be my guess.
0: So it seems like in 2020 hindsight, there was quite a um, donut bubble here. You think about oh, Duck Donuts much. coming here, you bought Dixie, uh, what was it, Dixie Donuts? Some of the other very ones much. that, and, and the purists in this town have always said, you know, I'm a country style guy, I'm a sugar shack guy, I'm a Mrs. Yoder's person. And then suddenly all of these different startups were were popping up. There's one inside the uh, the Autria Theater, which yep. was the Duck Donuts. Duck
1: Donuts, I think that one's still there. <laughs> But, yeah, there was a donut bubble, a cupcake bubble, and a frozen yogurt bubble all around the same time. Um, but when Sugar Shack came out, it blew up, and I think he expanded quickly because it was just a super popular brand. And, and I think he structured that expansion in a certain way that he's now maybe unwinding some of that.
0: Michael Schwartz, in the 10 minutes or so we have left, you get to do free skate. I know you're too young to know what a skating rink is, but back in the day, I would go to Sunshine Skateway in North Miami And after, you know, couples this and the hokey pokey this and everything, you get the DJ come on. It's like, all right, all right. That was air supply with all that of love. Everybody, it's free skate time. Free skate. Um, That's a jump ball, whatever (laughs) metaphor you want to look at. Uh, You tell me what we should be covering. You guys also talked about the Pamunkey Tribe's $350 million casino bid uh, on a huge swath of Manchester. What else is front and center?
1: Uh, I mean, on my mind, the boulevard is is really interesting and in what's to become of all that land there and what's to become of the diamond and potentially a new baseball stadium. Uh, and then what does that mean for Navy Hill? Uh, let's say Navy Hill doesn't get approved. Do, do plans change and maybe there's a Navy Hill type development that could be uh, constructed on, on the 60 acres that the city owns on and around the diamond. Um, we, we had an event uh, when was it last year and the gentleman mark horgan local, who owns a big local construction company had done some research and said that nowhere else on the east coast i guess from new york to miami is what he said is there a swath of land of 60 acres a swath of land the size of what's there on the boulevard mm-hmm. that is undeveloped in a major city like ours on on the basically along i-95 um and in a in a market like richmond that's booming I think it's fascinating to see what's going to go there. Um, I could envision it being almost like a second downtown. You know, you know, like if you fly over a place like Charlotte or, or Atlanta, you see downtown, and then there's a second sort of downtown area of high-rises. Could that become like the, the next sort of downtown Richmond with high-rise buildings and— uh, On the and boulevard.
0: A, yeah, potentially. You know, there are whispers and, and, and uh, whispers of whispers— that there might be some sort of activity in terms of rail development that could supercharge the fate of Scott's edition. You have the Science Museum that's there, which once upon a time, Richmond had a glorious uh, train station that wasn't just ceremonial. Yeah, the downtown one that we have is 17th Street station, it's ceremonial. It's great for weddings and bar mitzvahs, and I think you get one or two trains a day. But this idea that they would take the, uh, the eyesore of the Staples Mill, the main train station, and relocate it back and and you you suddenly have developments in high speed rail that this could be the terminus of higher speed rail. Have you heard anything to that effect?
1: I mean, last I heard it had been decided that Staples Mill and Main Street Station were all that. Those uh, who called the shots on rail needed enrichment. I know there were uh, there were folks like Eugene Trani who were were calling for for a train station to be on the boulevard, and that could be kind of an anchor of that of that little area, um, and that it would really change the game. But I don't. Last I heard, that was not the case, and that it had basically been decided, and that's why the federal funding was there to finish off Main Street Station and, and the train shed and all that. <sighs> yeah. Now Staples Mill, you'd like to see maybe a little extra federal money to fix that place up. They did add a parking lot there, though, for some extra parking. The
0: stat that it keeps throwing around, it's crazy. It's the busiest train station in all of Virginia.
1: Staples Mill? Blows the mind, doesn't it? But imagine, imagine what high-speed rail, true or even higher speed rail, imagine if you could take the train from Staples Mill to D.C. and get there in 45 minutes. See, if you had inside the
0: information about that, you would buy up every swath of Henrico, of Glen Allen, of oh, that Hanover. entire
1: corridor. Um, yeah, I mean Hanover. Yeah, you could live in yeah you can
0: live in Northern Henrico or Ash, Ashland area community. But right. do you want the place turning into Fredericksburg necessarily?
1: Right, uh, most would say no. But uh, but imagine if it could, if Richmond could hold on to its character, and you could still commute as needed to DC. Maybe not every day. Maybe if, even if it even if you could cut it to seventy five minutes on a train as opposed to two hours in a car, if you're lucky. Right.
0: Yeah. What are some interesting companies and startups that you're following? They're a bit under the radar that we're going to be hearing about more and more. I, I see, and it's not a startup, but I see CoStar in the headlines here, a tremendous amount, increasingly. This is kind of its home away from home, mm-hmm. like Capital One.
1: Yeah, I mean they they seem to be booming. Um, they're now sort of wrapped into the Navy Hill debate as well. You know, they came out two weeks ago and said w- if if Navy Hill is built, we would we would occupy an entire office tower there. Um, there uh, well, there are certain companies that are here in Richmond, I'm, I'm not going to name names because it's a story we're working on now that are um, oh behave. sort of Share. sort of uh, that are drawn to the region because of the presence of capital One uh-huh. um, that are pretty interesting and and it's interesting to see how Capital One feeds uh, certain things. you know there's we've constantly do, especially over the years, stories about startups that are that are, whose backers are former Capital One employees or, mm. or people who work at Capital One but are leaving to do this startup. So that's really, it's not always credit card or finance related. It's usually not. It's usually something else. Um, that's... So have that, you
0: followed West Creek Financial or Kinsale or some of these sure. other ones that have yeah. shown up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Kinsale's stock now is up to what? Tell almost, us what Kinsale a, does. I mean, I keep so, having people tell me that you should have Kinsale on the show. I'm like, wow.
1: Mike Kehoe is an interesting guy, the CEO, if you ever...
0: So what is it an insurer? Is specialty it a Markel type spe- yeah.
1: Specialty insurance, similar to Markel, so they'll insure random, just random things that and other they companies take, wouldn't.
0: They take the premiums and invest them in companies.
1: No, that's Markel's. Uh, I, I think with Kinsale, they just invest the premiums in sort of normal mm-hmm. uh, investments. Markel has their Markel Ventures arm that sure. that invests in you know pickle packing companies and all sorts of random yeah, yeah. things. Yeah. Um, yeah. West Creek Financial is pretty interesting. They're in the we have covered them kind of from the beginning. Um, is
0: that the, mattress finance?
1: Mattress, tires, HVAC purchases, yeah. So it's sort of that consumer, you know, whenever you go somewhere and say, oh, we offer financing, Hay- I don't know if they do Haynes or not, but they might, I don't know if Haynes is a customer.
0: So I don't understand that. Is this kind of debt that, that's not considered usurious because you, t- I, I, somebody they, tried to explain it to me they,
1: once. Their model is, it's just normal consumer retail debt, but they have supposedly algorithms that allow them to see borrowers who are otherwise considered subprime, as to be slightly more prime. So they know how to b- find people who have maybe subprime credit, but um, they think we'll actually make their payments on time. And, and it's then a safe investment for them.
0: Do you cover tobacco smuggling? Small- Hot business sm- in smuggling? Time. No. Tax arbitrage, you know. <laughs> Why do you think we have so many 7-Elevens and, and you know, is, people is taking it from to the- here to New York? And- no, but uh, no, to take it back, do you cover Altria much? I mean, that's left to the Wall Street Journal and the big players, but you have this massive company. You talk about, you did earlier, you know, the Capital One is there, uh, even though it's based in Fairfax County, it's got this enormous presence in w- the super west end of Richmond. You have Altria, you have Dominion, you have CoStar increasingly coming to the riverfront.
1: This this might bring the conversation back full circle to, to the way business does things. We We know, because we're all online, we know what stories play well and what our readers are really interested in. We have found that our readers aren't all that interested in news about Altria or Genworth or any of the, you know, name the big Fortune 500 companies that are here. Unless it's something hyper-local, say it's layoffs at uh, X company's local office. People are interested in that. But in terms of Altria's earnings, our readers don't care for that. Um, and the numbers show us that, and so we shy away from it, and, and we'll maybe link to someone else's coverage, but we kind of let Bloomberg or Wall Street Journal take care of that.
0: Well, in closing, and I wish we could have Aaron Kramer, your your founder in studio, um, is this something that you're interested in taking other places? When you talked about Denver longingly with the real estate market being on fire, should there be a Nashville business? sense? I mean, Austin doesn't have any shortage of players, but if you find the model, just like you talk about West Creek and that. You know, subprime is not necessarily subprime. If you could swoop into an area that's been cored out from micro business coverage, can you flick this switch on and pull off there what you did here?
1: It's not. Yes and no. We have had over the last year, I've had two people, two former Richmonders, one who moved to New Orleans, one who moved to uh, Sarasota, Florida. And they emailed and said, we this town needs something like BizSense. Can you come down here and do it? Um Odds are we could pull it off the challenge is finding the 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 talent the reporting talent to be able to do it there's
0: but, no shortage of reporting talent everybody has been remaindered they've been laid off they've been bought out but it's just finding
1: the people who want to do business reporting that's that's the challenge sometimes and who who see the value in it versus you know too many reporters only want to cover the government, and go after the powerful and hold the powerful accountable, or they want to cover the environment or they want to write features. It's hard to find someone who's really passionate about nitty-gritty local business news and geeks out on watching the property transfers and the building permits and the new business licenses and finding out who's doing what behind all those things.
0: And this self-actualizes you. Me personally? Yeah.
1: I enjoy it. I mean, yeah, I've been a business reporter for uh, going on 15... 16 years and I'm not that old. So it's been, you know, I've been in business a quarter of my life now, basically. So what does that tell you?
0: Wow. Final minute left. Predictions? Any new things that we should be following this year? Things that we should be covering that are getting short shrifted?
1: Well, Navy Hill will be decided (laughs) in the next uh, month or so.
0: Will it? Can't there be more forbearance on it? Can it kind of be, well, we're going to bring in another blue ribbon committee to make recommendations.
1: Well, there, yeah, I guess that's a prediction I could make. I, I do think the Navy Hill folks have a couple more uh, uh, cards up their sleeve that they've been holding on to. Some described the state legislation that was introduced that would allow state taxes to go towards that as a Hail Mary. I don't think that was a Hail Mary. I think that was something they'd been planning all along. So I still think those people are smart enough that they have been plotting and, and waiting for certain things to happen and that they have some more tricks up their sleeve.
0: Michael Schwartz of Richmond BizSense, uh, thank you so much for coming on. You did it on short notice, and I hope you will come on often. You're always welcome on the show. Who
1: was it that canceled last minute? Elon, Elon Musk me? canceled. Right, right
0: yes. Well, and J.D. Salinger. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, Robert. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine, a great talent, a great person, could not do this show without him. This show does air on NPR member station VPM News 88.9 on the NPR One app. And on iTunes at link fulldradio.com. Subscribe early and often, and please rave about us. We are C R E R V A dine. Tiff your waiter. Foya oh boya. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week.